Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello and welcome to The Intelligence on Economist Radio. I'm your host, Jason Palmer. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world. Video gaming is big business, bigger than the movie and music industries put together. But efforts to stream games over the internet, as movies and music are, have so far faltered. We take a look at the companies trying to become the Netflix of gaming. And we talk to an author who aimed to update a 1970s exploration of male sexuality by examining the lives of three women today. What she found is a revealing picture of modern female desire and how it's perceived. But first... Over the weekend in Yemen, an armed separatist uprising overran the key port city of Aden. This is surprising because that separatist group was one of an array of militias and international allies who are nominally on the same side in Yemen's civil war. That coalition is led by Saudi Arabia and supported by the United Arab Emirates and Western powers. It backs an internationally recognized government in its war against rebels known as Houthis. But after five years, the coalition's war against the Houthis has made little progress. Meanwhile, Yemen's people are suffering a humanitarian crisis of breathtaking scale. And this mutiny by separatists could indicate that the coalition is fragmenting. What you have now is basically a a civil war within a civil war. Roger McShane is our Middle East editor. At the top level, you you still have the Saudi-backed Sunni coalition that supports the the government against the Houthis. But on the local level, there was never really much of a a coalition. There were a bunch of armed groups shooting in the same direction at the Houthis, Um, but they never really had the same aims. And and that became very clear in Aden over the weekend. So what do we know about what happened this weekend? The internationally recognized government returned to Aden a couple of years ago, but not everyone in Aden was happy with that. Uh, You have a group called the Southern Transitional Council, which wants to secede from Yemen, set up its own country. Um, Now, they are nominally on the same side as the government, um, but they don't have the same aims. And what you saw over the weekend were the separatists pushing the government out of its building in Aden and essentially taking over the city. So why is this happening now? Why, Why now this focus in Aden? The problem of southern separatism dates back decades, if not centuries, um, up until 1990, South Yemen was its own country. And and even after unification, there remained a a sort of stark divide between the north and the south. Uh, Southerners considered themselves more cosmopolitan and see northerners as these sort of poorly educated uh, tribesmen. Northern Yemen is more populous, but southern Yemen has the oil. So there's always been sentiment for uh, secession. 
So why is this happening now? Why, why a push to, to take Aden? Well, the move comes on the back of news that the UAE is, is pulling out of Yemen, and, and they've been quietly withdrawing troops for months. Now, now, the UAE and Saudi Arabia and the internationally recognized government and the southern separatists, nominally, they are all on the same side. Um, but the UAE uh, helped stand up the, the separatist movement, helped arm them, helped organize them. Um, and them pulling out, the UAE pulling out has left a bit of a power vacuum in the south. Um, and the separatists now feel free to pursue their, their own aims. So while the UAE was there, they sort of held the separatists in check um, and kept sort of this, this unwieldy coalition, at least moving in the same direction. So without the UAE uh, there, I think the separatists felt a bit more free to pursue their ambitions uh, to secede. So Saudi Arabia and the United Arab Emirates together have been supporting the international government, but as the UAE has pulled out, the sort of loose coalition of various separatist fighters and militias of all sorts don't see a, a great deal of direction in this and are, are starting to pursue their own aims. And some of those, these, these separatists who have wanted a separate country in the South for, for decades, see a chance for that? I mean, what happens in Aden now? Yeah, no, I think you have it all, all right there. Um, uh, and it's not just the separatists in Aden. You have myriad armed groups that have their own sort of regional aims. And actually, the, the one thing that all these groups agree on is that the internationally recognized government is rather ineffective. Um, they find the president to be a rather inept figure. So, so I mean, the, the funny thing is, is that the, the one thing they agree on is that the government they're, they're fighting for um, is, is rather inept. Um, what happens in Aden? Um, well, that sort of depends. I mean, Saudi Arabia is warning uh, of more airstrikes on separatist positions. Um, you also have the kingdom, though, calling for talks in Riyadh. Um, even if there's some resolution in the short term, and, and that's no given, uh, this problem isn't going away. This problem of both sort of southern separatism and other regional groups calling for for more autonomy. Um, so it's, it's a problem that Saudi Arabia is, is eventually going to have to deal with. What seems to be coming increasingly clear to, to Saudi Arabia is, is that they're not going to be able to put Yemen back together uh, through force. But in, in, in a sense, this is not just a, a regional war. There are players beyond that. Uh, is, is what's happened in Aden going to, to shake American and British support for, for Saudi Arabia's goals? That seems unlikely. I mean, as you know, American support has already been been shaken. You know, the Senate uh, voted to block a, a eight billion dollar arms sale to to Saudi Arabia and the UAE. Um, but I, it, I don't think it shakes uh, Donald Trump's support for Saudi Arabia. And part of the reason uh, for that is because the background music to all this is growing tensions with Iran and and. Donald Trump and Saudi Arabia see the war in Yemen as, as a proxy war uh, with Iran, and that's going to make it much more difficult uh, to end. And so while this sort of fragmentation of the, the Saudi-led coalition is, is going on, what about the, the sort of the core fight here between all of those uh, would-be allies and the Houthi movement? Are, are the Houthis still strong? Yeah, the Houthis are still strong. I mean, the Houthis are still very strong. It, you know, it's been nearly five years and, and they have not been, you know, despite uh, Saudi airstrikes, despite UAE-backed uh, offensives, 
the coalition hasn't been able to push the Houthis uh, out of the out of the north. So yeah, the Houthis are still very strong, and that's sort of you know we as we see these sort of mini civil wars erupt. You know, you forget that the the big civil war is still is still going on, and they're still fighting throughout the north. So do you think that this uh, Emirati withdrawal and the way that that has sort of shaken the alliance, do, do you think that's going to drive Saudi Arabia to, to change its tactics or, or indeed kind of reshuffle the who, who are the power brokers in, in the country? I, I think it will force, it will have to force Saudi Arabia to change its tactics. I mean, the, the UAE's army is much smaller than Saudi Arabia's, but it's, a, it's much more capable and on the ground in Yemen, the Emiratis were really leading the charge. Um, they organized most of the ad- advances made by the coalition. Um, so their withdrawal rules out further big offensives, uh, at least that's what it seems. Um, so, so the tactics are going to have to change. I mean, on top of that, uh, you wonder if there's going to be a sort of remixing of the, of the coalition. You know, the Emiratis favored certain groups, the Saudis favored others, now that the Emiratis aren't there, does that mean that their uh, local forces fall out of favor with the coalition? Uh, who knows? I mean, what you're seeing in Aden is sort of the manifestation uh, of, of all this, of, of the messiness uh, of all this. Roger, thank you very much for joining us. My pleasure. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Streaming media online has upended both the music and film industries. Music streaming apps such as Spotify have changed the way we listen to music and which music we listen to, while film streaming giants such as Netflix have sparked the now familiar practice of binge-watching hours at a time. I think streaming's changed the world in at least three different ways, and the one kind of most obvious one is it makes media available all the time. Tim Cross is The Economist's technology editor. You can listen to Spotify as you're walking to work or as you're riding your bike around the place. It's changed the equation from the producer side as well, particularly in music. The concept of an album hardly makes any sense anymore. People are much more interested in individual songs. There's much less space for filler than there used to be. The other thing it's done is proved to these industries that the internet's not necessarily a death sentence. But there's one side of the entertainment industry that's bigger than films and music combined. Video games. Tech giants such as Microsoft and Google are betting big on game streaming and hoping to become the Netflix of video games. But what do the gamers think? I think I started playing video games when I was about 10 years old and I got a Game Boy Pocket for Christmas. It was a very exciting day. I'm not the biggest fan of cloud gaming because I quite like having the copies of things because I'm one of these people who always worries about what's going to happen if the internet cuts off. So I quite like having physical copies or downloads as backups. I don't necessarily have the money to just like drop 50 quid on a new title and the idea of like maybe just paying a subscription fee a month and being able to access stuff and not have to pay lots of individual costs is something that is interesting to me. 
I would ideally want a Netflix-style subscription. I could imagine a tiered pricing could work quite well. I'd also like the accessibility to a variety of games because part of it is in exploring and finding new ways of telling stories or whatever. My approach is I tend to get involved in a game and then make loads of time for it and play it all the time and you get a bit lost in it and you go into the zone. <laughs> I just blew myself up. Oh, oh. So, Tim, why haven't we seen a Netflix or Spotify for video games yet? Well, people have tried. I mean, digital distribution for video games, that does exist. That's very common, particularly on the PC. If you buy a video game now, chances are you buy it from something like Steam and you you just download it as a giant set of computer files and play it. But full-on streaming, where instead of the code running on your local PC or your local console in your living room, it's actually run somewhere else in a data center belonging to, to some big company. That's been tried before. There was a company called OnLive, whose service I think started in 2010, but it's never really taken off. So Sony offers something along those lines with a product called PlayStation Now, where you can play sort of some mostly older PlayStation titles and all the processing is done remotely. But it's never really sort of taken off in gaming in the way that you know Spotify and Netflix have for music and film. But why? What, what, what's the holdup? Well, the big holdup is technical. So games are interactive, right? You know, you, you play them. And that means the game has to respond pretty quickly to your input. You know, you have to push a button to get Mario to jump, otherwise he falls down the hole. And just the laws of physics mean that if you press a button and then it has to go down a wire to your router, off to your ISP, several more internet hops to some data center that's 600 miles away, get processed, the game state gets updated, and then the information has to come all the way back. That just adds a lot of lag. And a lot of games, particularly the sort of action-y games that you see on top of the bestseller list, so your Call of Duties, that kind of thing, lag pretty quickly makes them feel quite unfun to play. It's all sort of sluggish. It's like, it's like walking through sand. And the other problem is that you need a pretty robust internet connection. So anyone who watches Netflix will be familiar with the little spinning wheel as things buffer when whenever your connection has a hiccup. That's a problem with video, but because video is fixed and never changes, you can mitigate it by buffering. So you can download, you know, an extra 30 seconds or an extra five minutes beyond what you currently need so that if the connection falls over, you just play the stuff from the buffer and hope that it comes back up. With games, again, you, you can't do that. You can't predict how the game's going to change because it all depends on, on what the user does. So if there is still the risk then of these shortcomings, what's in it for the consumer? Why would a consumer bother with it? One of the big problems with video games is just the cost of getting into it is quite high. You know, you have to pay several hundred pounds for a console or even more than that if you want a PC. We don't have exact details of pricing yet for all of the cloud gaming platforms, but it looks like they're going to offer a subscription service. So you pay, you know, $10 a month or whatever it is, and you get access to a big library of games that you don't have to pay for up front. A big blockbuster video game costs about $60 now. You don't have to pay for the console. It works on pretty much any screen you've got anywhere in your house, no matter how feeble the hardware is. So it works on your smartphone or it works on your your smart TV maybe and not all games are that sensitive to lag so if you're you know if you're a professional esports player and you're playing League of Legends and that's your living then probably you aren't very interested in this but if you're just somebody who likes to pass a bit of time playing something like I don't know Harvest Moon which is a farming game or the latest installment of Civilization which is turn-based do you really care about an extra 50 milliseconds of input lag particularly if you can save yourself hundreds and hundreds of dollars of upfront costs. So I think it's not clear yet who this is going to be marketed at, but I think one effect it could have if they can make it work is to massively grow the potential audience for video gaming. One of the things that you see hyped up around discussions of this sort is that it has uh, applications beyond mere gaming. What's your take on that? 
Yeah, so you see lots of talk about, well, you know, if we can make something as demanding as video games work, then maybe we could do remote surgery or, you know, self-driving cars, all that kind of thing. And I'm a little bit skeptical about that. The internet is not perfect and was never designed to be perfect. There's a big difference. If, you know, if your Call of Duty game drops out because a squirrel has been chewing on your phone line or something or because Google's cloud services have an outage, then that's one thing. Okay, you know, you're kicked out of the middle of the match. You were about to win the leaderboard, whatever. It doesn't really matter. If you're doing things like remote surgery or remote operation of machinery, it really does matter. And you need an even more reliable connection than you do for cloud gaming. So people say this might have read across, maybe, but I think that's much, much longer term than, than this is. All right, look, for, for my part, I haven't been into games since around about the Street Fighter II era, so bring me up to speed. Well, look, I'm in a similar boat, right? I've got kids and a long commute and a job and all the rest. The games industry, I think, has sort of more and more realized that a lot of its customers are people like us who are, shall we say, not quite in the first flower of youth. And so there are quite a lot more games now that are targeted at more sort of casual players or that you don't have to devote you know, your entire life to. And of course, if cloud gaming does take off, no harm in trying. It doesn't cost you $300 to get in anymore. You may as well give it a shot. There's been a lot of sequels to Street Fighter since your day. Tim, thanks very much for coming in. Thanks, Jason. In the early 1970s, the writer Gay Talese set out to record the evolution of America's attitudes to sex. Nine years of immersive research led to a book called Thy Neighbor's Wife. Mr. Talese wove histories of pornography and obscenity law with lurid tales of sex gurus and swingers. He traced the sexual liberation of Playboy founder Hugh Hefner. Hugh Marston Hefner. He controls his kingdom from a seven-foot, circular, power-driven, vibratable bed. It rotates as well. Whose upbringing in a repressed Protestant household was formative in his becoming America's best-known, well, Playboy. The book was a sensation even before it was published in 1981. But its perspective was decidedly male. Now, the writer Lisa Tadeo is trying to update that narrative with her best-selling new book, Three Women. Lisa Tadeo had written a feature in 2010 for New York Magazine about halfway hookers, the women who work in VIP nightclubs offering bottle service. Rachel Lloyd edits Prospero, our culture blog, and recently interviewed Ms. Tadeo. And it gave her the idea to revisit Thy Neighbor's Wife by Gaitelise. I was intrigued by Thy Neighbor's Wife. It, you know, it was about... Only from a woman's perspective. He had focused on men, and particularly famous men. She wanted to tell the story of ordinary women. We were like, kind of like, should we, you know, should you do an updated sort of Thy Neighbor's Wife for today from a woman's perspective? So she spent eight years traversing the country to find women who were willing to share their inner thoughts and desires with her. And she hopes that they come to stand for what the whole of longing in America looks like. And so how does her account of desire and sex in America compare to Gaitalise's account? Other than the focus on women rather than men, his book was a much broader cultural history. She focuses in much more quotidian detail on their everyday lives. One character, Lena, is a housewife with two young children. She talks about the things that she makes her son for lunch, for example, while she's thinking about the man with whom she's having an affair. Another character is a restaurateur, so you hear a lot about what she's making with her husband at their restaurant, while also talking about the men and women who are joining them in their bedroom and how that's the talk of their small town. Maggie, who is a young girl who conducts an affair with her high school teacher, 
you hear about how she dresses herself up for court because when she gets older, she reports him for corruption of a minor. And so what did she want to convey? What's the take-home message? Lisa said in our interview that she wanted to convey the idea of imbalances in relationships and the way that the indifference of a partner can wound the other. That was one main thing I wanted to get across. I think not replying to a text. Like Lena would say to Aiden, you couldn't, for two weeks or one, whatever it was, you couldn't reply one word back. Just one word. And sometimes, like, the not feeling like you're alive and seen in the world is hideous. And yeah. it's like De- Maggie was denied, Sloan was denied, Lena was denied. And so is that what stuck with you about the book, that desire is always denied? To an extent. For me, I found it more surprising the way in which women were always the people that policed the women in the book. So Lena, when she first expresses to her friends that her marriage is falling apart, that her husband won't touch her. The women are very sympathetic and kind, but as soon as she says she's having an affair, they turn on her quite quickly. What I found is that women, when somebody else is suffering, they are like, you know, oh, oh. And then once you pull yourself out, there is judgment for how you pull yourself out. And Lisa said in our interview that it's something that she observed when she was talking to her friends and acquaintances about her project, that they didn't like the way that these women expressed their desire. This one friend of mine said, that's so pathetic. And I was like, what do you mean? You've done the same thing. And I know it just because it was a hedge fund manager in New York, like does not make Lena's story pathetic. And And so in thinking about it as an update to Thy Neighbor's Wife and its sort of the heroic conquests and desires of important men brought to the 21st century, is it really an update? It's definitely drawing on that book in the way that it's written and the way that it really immerses itself in the lives of these people. But for me, it's not a mirror image or a counterpart. She is mostly looking at how old-fashioned ideas towards women's personal lives and libidos and things pervade. It's an exploration, really, of female desire and people's response to it. How men and women find women's desire disgusting, unruly, unacceptable, unpalatable. And the book has really hit a nerve at the moment. It's a bestseller in Britain and America. And it's very timely in that there's rollbacks of women's rights in America. And those rollbacks are, in essence, an attack on women's sexual agency. And the book is a vital part of that conversation. Rachel, thanks very much for your time. Thank you. That's all for this episode of The Intelligence. If you like us, give us a rating on Apple Podcasts. And you can subscribe to The Economist at economist.com slash radio offer. 12 issues for $12 or £12. See you back here tomorrow. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute.